Acts chapter 27, uh, this kind of latter half of it, it's kind of full of action. It's a little bit crazy. Uh, We saw last week that the story of Paul and his journey to Rome, uh, it really kind of takes off at the beginning of chapter chapter 27, and they make these uh, decisions uh, Paul is being transferred to Rome by the Roman authorities. He's appealed to Caesar, and so he's put on a ship with uh, a bunch of other prisoners. We find in the text uh, last week that there are 276 people on the ship in total, and they're making their way from ship to ship, and finally they come to uh, Alexandria. They get on another ship that is sailing for Italy, and then they uh, make their way uh, to this area on uh, this area called Fair Havens, and they're thinking, okay, maybe this is a good spot to camp for a bit, but realizing they aren't able to stay there for the winter, they decide that they're going to move on and try to make it to the other side of Crete uh, to um, another city. But in the process, Paul knows that the, the, the trading routes, he knows the winds, he knows the seas here, and he thinks it's a good idea to just kind of buckle down here, but they don't want to listen, and so they Uh, go on their way. They set off, and at first it looks like they made the right choice by not listening to Paul. seems like they're making uh, great progress, but soon the winds, the weather that Paul had warned about is upon them, and soon they find themselves 400 to 600 miles off course, pushed backwards. They aren't able to control the ship And they don't want to capsize the ship, so they end up having to just turn into it and go with the wind. And so they get pushed uh, quite a ways. Now, they are getting to the point where they've been at sea for 14 days, we're told, again and again. They've not eaten anything. Uh, One, probably because they were a little bit nervous and everyone's all hands on deck. And also because when you're in a crazy storm where you can't see the sun or the stars for three or four days, like at that level, like probably you're not going to keep food down anyways. Uh, No matter how experienced you are out on the ocean, for 14 days of rough seas, it's probably going to get you. And so they come to this last portion thinking that they are nearing land that we're told they're measuring these, uh, the depths. And so they put out kind of these countermeasures to slow them uh, so they can direct more specifically uh, but ultimately, they realize, okay, we are waiting for the day, and as soon as they, as day comes, we uh, come to a section now where they uh, are realizing, like, oh, there, there's a, a harbor, a beach nearby that we could possibly land on. And so we come to our text this morning, uh, and we gain some more information uh, about this journey. In verse 39, <coughs> Luke, who's writing the book of Acts, he says this, now when it was day... Right, so it's been it's been night. It's been um, not only night, but it's been stormy for uh, several days. So they haven't even been able to see the sun or the stars. It's been uh, a little bit light out, but it seems like they've been in the midst of heavy rains, heavy wind. Uh, you know, there's probably fog or uh, there's not much visibility. Um, and then when you're further out to sea, it's harder to see land, anyways. Uh, and so they've ex- been experiencing this, but now it is day. And they've been drifting. They don't have a clue to their location. They have zero idea where they're at. Uh, they, 
we're told uh, that they do not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay, verse 39, with a beach on which they planned to run, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they, they notice this, this bay with a beach. They think, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to steer our ship into the beach, and we're going to run it uh, into the ground so that way right onto the sand so uh, we can just jump right out and we don't have to get stuck in the water. Uh, we, we already cut away our, our lifeboat, or the, the soldiers did, uh, and so therefore uh, we, we don't have a way to get off in the ocean. So now we are going to have to run this uh, ship into the beach. Now their plan is threefold, we're told. They, verse 40, they cast off anchors and left them in the sea. So the first thing is they, they remove these anchors that have been, they put out to slow their drag, so that way, uh, afraid of hitting the rocks, they're like, okay, we put these out the night before. Uh, they put out these anchors to kind of slow them. Now they're saying, okay, let's just cut these loose. Uh, so they are picking up speed again, full speed ahead into this beach. The second thing they do, uh, verse 40, at the same time, they loosen the ropes that tied the rudders. Uh, and so the, they have no really control of the rudders and the paddles that were there. And so they uh, pull all resistance out of the water. And then third, uh, they hoist the foresail to the wind, uh, that, and then they made for the beach. So this would be uh, raising the the frontmost sail on the ship, instead of trying to not be caught by the wind, now they decide, okay, we need as much acceleration, momentum as possible. So they throw up uh, the front sail to give them as much uh, power as possible to catch the wind and achieve the speed that they would need to, to get to the beach. And so they make their way uh, as fast as possible. We come to verse 41. Here's what happens. Striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The front of the ship, it hit what was likely, uh, you know, a sandbar. Uh, it probably wasn't like the, the kind of rocks that they were afraid of, but th there were in this bay, there were kind of like two narrowing um, portions of water. Uh, most people think that it is this uh, bay called St. Paul's Bay uh, on the island, on the northern side of the island of Malta. Uh, you can go and Google it if you want to get real nerdy about it. Uh, but there are these kind of two uh, straits of water that come in, and there's sandbars that form there. And so probably what happened was as they were making their way in, they got stuck in one of these sandbars, and the, sh uh, and the, the front of the ship was lodged into that. It was lodged into the sandbar, but they were far, far, excuse me, far enough in uh, from from the uh, from the waves and, and from the swells were coming in that the back of the ship was beginning to to be destroyed. It was it was being pummeled by waves and and large swells, and uh, as it was. Uh, facing this, each time something hit it, little pieces of the ship were breaking off and more and more. The longer it was there, the more it would be uh, destroyed. And it became clear that the ship would not move. We're told it's immovable, and it would likely be uh, just destroyed in the surf. Now, they were still a good distance from shore, and so the only way to escape was to go into the sea. Now, the question as we come to this, as we look at this, it's like, what is, what is like, aside from giving us just kind of the play-by-play, -play, 
the play-by-play of what happened, aside from giving us the narrative, what is it that Luke is actually hoping to accomplish through giving us all these details? I mean, he could have just said, like, we went on the ship and uh, we ran into some trouble, the ship was wrecked, and we made it to shore. What is it that Luke is hoping for his readers to hear and to understand? I think it's important for us to stop and to take note of the doctor's words. Luke, who is a physician, is very into the details, is very descriptive. He wants you to know the direction of the ship. He wants you to picture the situation that you are in. He wants you to understand Put in your mind that you are there in that ship. That you are there upon the ship thinking, yes, we are finally out of the storm. We are making our way to safety. You see the beach done. Great. No resistance. We're just now we finally get to go with the wind. Let's do this. Let's be done. He wants us to feel that camaraderie like, yes, they're going to be out of it. And then also to feel the bit of desperation that comes when they hit the sandbar. And then the little hope that rises, oh, well, maybe the, maybe the waves will not get free. And then again, we're told it's immovable. The ship will not be released. And the drama increases. He says the waves begin to bash the back of the ship. It's pummeled. Pieces of the ship are breaking off. They don't have a lifeboat. There is no way of escape. He wants us to understand these things because these are the situations that we often find ourselves in, that we often experience in life. Where it seems like, yes, I have a way of escape. Yes, I see the end. And then a speed bump, a pothole. Then you're stuck. Something breaks. You're on a path, and all of a sudden, you have a little bit of hope, and then it's crushed. And you think you have a, oh, great, uh uh-oh. It's an emotional roller coaster that happens. And it's in those moments where, in those moments, we respond on the basis of what we know. We respond on the basis of what we know. You see, Luke is writing this, but in the back of his mind, in in our mind as readers, looking earlier in in this uh, account that Luke writes, we are told not one one person is going to perish. And so although there is difficulty, although there is drama, although there is danger, everyone will be safe. Because the promise of God is faithful. And this is what we need to experience. When we are in these difficulties, when we are in circumstances that are beyond our control, when it seems like there's no lifeboat, it seems like we're stuck in the sandbar, and the waves of life are bashing against the back of the ship, and it seems like we are stuck, there is no way out, we need to remember what we know. And when we say, what is it that we know, we're not speaking about 
being very knowledgeable about the scriptures. We're not speaking about being, uh, oh, I've got all, all the Bible answers together. We're told in the scriptures that what you know is important, but it's only important in the right context. If it's applicable to who you know. And for us, and for Paul, what you know is only helpful, the promises are helpful, or only helpful if the person who made the promise is good for their word. And for you and I, Jesus is the one who makes that promise. He is the one who is delivering to us his faithful word. He is the one who is delivering to us his promises. And so it's okay if we know those things, but it's only helpful if we know how faithful he is. A promise made by someone who's not very faithful isn't very good. Right? That's not helpful. That just doesn't bring comfort. But we have promises, riches in Christ that keep us afloat in storms. Now these men were a good distance from shore, verse 42. And so the soldiers figure, all right, we're in trouble. We're in difficulty here. And their plan, we're told, verse 42, was to kill the prisoners lest any should swim away and escape. So, two reasons here why this, this comes about. The, the soldiers, they don't trust Paul's word uh, that they would not die. Paul's already told them, you guys need to stay on the ship. You stay on the ship, you won't die. We all need to stick together. You stick with us, you won't die. He's told them two times already what the outcome will be, but they don't trust him. They're taking their lives into their own hands and their immediate thought is to protect themselves. Paul said, everybody on the ship will survive. And what the soldiers do then instead is think, let's kill all the prisoners. Then we don't have to worry about them. The soldiers would be responsible to deliver the prisoners to Rome. And so in order to accomplish this, they had to protect them, keep, get them there safely. And so they're having to make sure that all the prisoners are out there and they're not drowning and everyone's able to make it to shore safely and they're not worrying about their own lives. They're, they're not like, oh, it's every man for themselves. Otherwise, they're just like, let's just kill them all and like, we can all just get to shore safely. So there's one avenue, but the other avenue that's in the back of their minds is this. If prisoners swim away and escape, they would face the punishment that would be due to, uh, that would be given to the prisoners. And most of these prisoners would end up being sent to execution. They would be put in uh, the uh, arena to face gladiators or wild animals. And so if a prisoner got away, then these Soldiers would then face the punishment that would have been given to the prisoners. And so they just think, let's just kill them here. Then we can say none of them got away. And everybody, we can all keep our lives. They plan to save themselves by killing others. They plan to rescue themselves by killing everybody else. 
But the centurion, who it seems that Paul had developed a relationship with, some trust with him over the course of this trip, and um, his reputation had kind of gone before him, we're told, verse 43, he wished to save Paul, and he kept them from carrying out their plan. He kept the soldiers from killing off all of these prisoners, including Paul. You see, all the work that Paul has put in is paying off. He has been faithful to sow into this guy's life. He has been faithful to help him excel at his job. He has been faithful to help him execute the orders that are given to him. And this guy, he's appreciative. He sees up. Paul's actually an asset. We don't want to get rid of him. And if Paul says, we're all going to make it, let's keep everybody alive. This is part of our job as Christians. We talk, uh, we, we talk about this. Paying our relational rent. you got to get in there with people who aren't believers. And you just got to love them. Help them be faithful with what they have on their plate. There are co-workers, colleagues, peers that you have that are working to accomplish good things and we want to be there to help them. To say, you look a little stressed about that. Let me give you some advice. Let me show you how I helped out here. Oh, let me make this introduction. As we get in there and build relationships with people who are not Christians, as we spend time doing that, it opens the door for us to speak into their lives when it is an appropriate time. As the Holy Spirit makes opportunities for us to then speak into those lives, we can take those. And we can take those knowing that the people that we're building relationships with, that they will accept that advice because they know our character. They will give us a fair hearing. They will say, all the advice that you've given me thus far has been great. It's been really helpful, and I've seen that you've had my best interest in mind. I've seen that, you have, that you've sown into my life in a way that has cost you. You've given your own time, your resources, your network, your introductions that you've made. You've used those for me. So why would I not listen to you about another piece of advice that you're getting? You see, the Lord has allowed Paul to build this relationship here with the centurion. And so, instead of the soldiers killing these men, we see that he ordered them, ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land. So not everybody could swim at that time. Uh, some who could, they get off first. But it ends up that all the prisoners end up being saved because simply the centurion wished to save Paul. One man, his reputation, his life, preserved the many. One man was faithful in the midst of the storm, one man was faithful when facing false accusations and death. And because he was faithful, because his character was on display, he saved the many. 
You see, Paul was just being like Jesus. Because this is exactly what Christ has done for us. The one man who was falsely accused, who was completely innocent, facing death, gave his life for the many. Paul was just mirroring his Savior. And this is what we are to do in life. As we build relationships, we are to do this in a way, to live in a way so that people see Jesus clearly in our lives. Verse 44, the rest on planks are pieces of the ship, all people who couldn't swim. So they were all brought safely to land. So God has kept his word. The faithfulness of God is on display. Paul can just be like, look, the promise that I made to you, I said that a messenger from uh, an angel from the Lord came and told me, you're all going to be safe, everybody who's on the ship with you. God's faithfulness is on display. They all have made it safely. And Paul can refer them back to verse 24, that word that he received. Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Paul has a tangible evidence of God's faithfulness for this group of men to look back on. Soldiers, sailors, prisoners. God has demonstrated his faithfulness. They make it to land. We continue in verse 1. After we were brought safely through, we learned that the island was called Malta. So they still didn't know where, where they were. They likely were informed of this location by the first group of people that they meet. Uh, they're told that they are at Malta. This is a small island that is south of Sicily and east of Tunisia. I don't know if you guys know where Sicily or Tunisia are. I just realized. But it's somewhere between uh, the northeastern part of Africa and below Italy. There you go. Broader directions. <clears throat> it's a tiny island uh, there, and it seems as well, when they were drifting, uh, we know we've talked about them drifting about 400 miles, uh, four, four to 600 miles. It seems that the direction, if you are looking at like a map, it seems like they were drifting west. So like they started uh, out on the eastern section, like say where uh, like Israel is, they just went, drifted like across towards towards Africa, uh, through the Mediterranean. Now, they land upon the island. Verse 2, the native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. So they get here, typical, you know, like uh, stranded on an island 101. You get there and you're like, not sure. Like, are the people who are here, are they going to like try to kill us? Or are they going to be nice? And it seems like, uh, this group, maybe they were expecting them to be hostile, but instead, Paul says, they showed us unusual kindness. Now, they demonstrate this kindness through hospitality. They kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. So it's just some practical ways that they demonstrate this kindness. But here's what, here's what Paul's, Paul's getting at here, or, or I guess what Luke's getting at here. As they land, this group of shipwrecked people, 
upon this, the natives of the island of Malta, hey, they turn out to be really great people, super good. They're just like, hey, you guys look like you're down on your luck. We're going to take care of you. We're going to build you a fire. We're going to, it's raining. We're going to help you out. You guys are probably all exhausted. Maybe they all look like, you know, like skeletons, all like weak and frail from not eating for 14 days and, uh, you know, losing a lot of water out at sea. Maybe they don't have very much strength. And it says that they have this, this unusual kindness. What Paul, uh, or what Luke is pointing out here is that these are, are really just great people. Just super, super great people. Super kind, super nice. They are the type of people that you just would, would love to take care of you. And he does this for a reason. We'll get to that in a second. We come to the time where Paul is sitting with this group of people. They're building this fire. We read in verse 3, When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. Epic, right? Like Paul's like, awesome, escaped a shipwreck, snake bit by like this crazy viper. You see, Paul has just experienced 14 days of intense trials, of being out on the ocean. He has just experienced difficulty and suffering and gets on land for like a couple minutes. He just gets settled here. It's raining, it's cold, and then like the one little like nice thing, it's like, oh, a warm fire. And some people are nice. And then this viper happens. I want you to notice two things. First, that Paul is immediately acting as a servant. <laughs> He gets off of this crazy shipwreck. He gets to shore. They're like, maybe going to kill him and all the people he's with. And then he doesn't get there and be like, oh, great. Thanks for saving me. He immediately gets to work. He's like, boom. Okay, like, let's build this fire. He's probably one of the older people on the ship, too. But he's out there. He's like grabbing these bundles of sticks. He could have been like, oh, you guys take care of that. I'm just going to sit here. <laughs> I'm going to rest. He's immediately serving. He doesn't use the trial that he's just come out of as an excuse to call it in. He's just like, nope, it's time to get to work. His singular focus is being like Jesus. And this is the attitude that we are to have. When you are making your way out of a trial, it's not time to be, oh, now it's time for me. It's now it's time to get back to work. And the question that we, we then ask is like, well, well, what if I'm like exhausted? What if I'm so dead tired? What if I can't do it? Well, the way that the body of Christ works is that you're supposed to be thinking of other people constantly, never yourself, never yourself, always other people. But that means that they're supposed to be thinking of you. 
So if you were thinking of yourself, that's one person thinking of yourself. But if everybody in this room is thinking of you, that's more people thinking about you than you're thinking about you. So if you think about other people and worry about serving other people, and someone will come to you and say, you just got out of a shipwreck, you sit down. I'm going to handle this. But if nobody says that, then you serve with the ability that God gives. You work with the ability that God gives. We don't make excuses. We don't call it in. We get down to work because that's what Jesus did. There's not a time where we say, my turn, my turn for me. The, the Lord's got you. The tr- he's set it up so that the church has you. And if you're tired, then you can tell somebody, hey, like, I, I, I'm actually just really tired. People aren't noticing? It's okay. Just say it. Find somebody that you know and be like, hey, I would really love to serve, but like, I, I really need to be poured into right now. Ask for help. The scriptures tell us we're to bear one another's burdens. And if we don't know about your burden, we can't help you bear it. So you've got to do your job, too. You are running on empty. You've got to invite people into your life and say, I'm, 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 I'm on fumes here. Now, that's the first thing. The second thing is this. We're always just moving between trials. Paul gets out of a trial, he has a little lull this time, and then he's back into another one. There's never a time where you're not going to experience trials. You're going to experience suffering and difficulty frequently. You're either in the midst of a trial, leaving a trial, or about to head into a trial. You pick one, either way, you're going to get a trial. You're on your way out, and then you're on your way back in. And the way that you survive this is that you make Jesus all. All in all, he's everything to you. He is the constant in the midst of the trial. And here, Paul, experiencing this, another trial immediately. The viper comes out, it fastens on, because of the heat, it fastens on his hand. He's in danger immediately again. Paul was being faithful to God in this moment. He was being this awesome servant, doing what he was supposed to be doing, but that didn't protect him from the trial. Because he was serving Jesus doesn't mean you're immune from trials, but rather you suffer with Christ as he has experienced great suffering as well. Now, the difference with trials is how then you respond to them. How then you respond to these difficulties. Verse 4, we see first the response from this group of natives, this pagan people. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. So the first response from the pagan people here on this, on this island is this. Paul deserves this punishment. Their judgment is that he was bitten by the snake. This serpent has attached onto him because he escaped the sea. He really should have been punished in the sea. He would now die by the serpent because he had escaped this death in the sea. And so they make this assumption, oh, Paul, he must have been a murderer. No doubt he's a murderer, they say. The worst kind of person because this happened to him. If he wasn't a murderer, maybe he would have escaped the sea and had like a lower level punishment. But he gets bitten by this this crazy viper. 
And then they say this, justice has not allowed him to live. They're not just talking about the, the concept of justice. They're referring to uh, this Greek goddess of justice, decay. And this would have been, uh, this Greek goddess of justice would have been a, a, a goddess that would have like dished out this judgment either a, primarily upon the sea, which is kind of what you see in some of the um, Hellenist literature of the time, you know, and you think, see things like... Uh, there's like the story of like um, Odysseus and like all like kind of like that sort of thing where like he's out on the sea and experiencing all these hardships and the ship's going, you know what I'm talking about. So that, that's, that's kind of one way uh, that this would, would have come about. But then they're saying, well, he escaped the sea. So therefore, this, this goddess is now following up to, to, to kill Paul through this viper. And it probably was a little bit confusing that he made it out of the sea alive, so then they maybe thought some good things about him. But here, that, that, that's their response. They make this immediate judgment upon him. You must be the worst type of person because these things are happening to you. They immediately put an identity upon him that says you're a bad person. Now, by contrast, remember how Luke describes them? They're super good people. They're the best people because they took care of him unusual kindness not just like they were kind but like they went out of their way but here's the response that we find from paul verse five he however shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm here's the response from paul he distrusted the grace of God. The viper bit him, and he was just like, ain't no thing. <laughs> just tossed him right into the fire like, all right. He trusted the grace of God. Here's how. First, he didn't operate under the belief that bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. It's a trap. That view is a trap, often referred to, uh, you know, in our kind of modern day as karma, which is different than like the classical view of karma. But oftentimes people say like, oh, you're going to get bad karma. You did bad things and bad things will happen back to you. But the view of karma, bad things happen to bad people, good things happen to good people. It has a false view of man. It has a false view of mankind. Because the scriptures tell us that there are no good people. It's only bad people. And God's grace that is given to bad people. And so these people who offered unusual kindness are then being put under this microscope of saying, well, they're thinking that Paul's a bad person because bad things happened to him. And they think we're good people, so we did good things. You see, what they're trying to do is trying to earn their reputation. They're trying to show that we are the good people of the island. We take care of people here. But for Paul, and the gospel that he preaches, it doesn't matter. Because there are no good people. There's only bad people who are in need of a Savior that is freely offered to all. And here, Paul doesn't operate on the basis of this karma, bad thing happened to him, so now he's going to be just crushed himself. He doesn't allow the view 
to live with them. But instead, he just ain't no thing. Snake into the fire, boom, done. Now, this view that bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people, it also breeds entitlement. Because when we think that we're good people, then we think bad things shouldn't happen to us. You think, oh, I don't deserve this. When trials come, you are then unprepared because you believe suffering should never come your way. I don't deserve this. I, don't, I shouldn't have this hardship in my life. I shouldn't have this difficulty. You see Paul's response? He didn't say, oh, I'm grabbing this bundle of sticks and I just got out of this shipwreck and obviously like I survived, like I'm a good person and so therefore I'm, I'm really tired. I shouldn't be having to serve. You guys are all just sitting around. You guys should have been the ones doing that and you're like the actual guys who are, who are like real prisoners who are really going to be condemned to death and you're the ones who really deserve this. He doesn't make that accusation. He doesn't draw a line and say, you're a bad people, person, I'm a good person, and this shouldn't happen to me. He just shakes it off. Second, Paul recognizes through his actions that he would not be immune from suffering because he's serving the Lord. His expectation is that he will encounter difficulty and hardship. He didn't say, I can't believe this happened to me now. I can't believe this viper came out. I just got out of the shipwreck. He didn't start yelling at God, what are you doing? This is a really bad idea. Don't you know what I just got done with? He didn't start yelling at the Lord. Instead, he looked to Christ, who was the model, who obeyed the Father perfectly and suffered well. Jesus tells us in John 15, verse 18, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. You see, Jesus tells those who follow him, There's no way that you're going to be immune from suffering if I wasn't immune. A servant is not greater than his master. So the expectation should not be that you're going to be free from trials and tribulation. But rather, you will experience this. But here's the third thing. Paul lives, he lives in this moment and in every moment, from identity in Christ. Paul's reaction is purposefully just so deadpan and nonchalant. Crazy snake comes out, latches on. This is the one spot where Luke's not like, it came out and it bit him and there was like blood spurting everywhere and like Paul was like shaking and he was running around. Like he's not, this is the one spot he's not crazy descriptive about what happened. He just says, it bit him, and Paul shook it into the fire. Like, it just wasn't a thing. Like, it just happened, and, like, nobody really knew. Like, okay. <laughs> he, he, he cages this, this phrasing in a way that is, help, helps us to see 
And Paul didn't make this huge deal out of this. His reaction is calm. Here's why. He knew the promises that Jesus made to him. And he knew Jesus was faithful to his promises. He's standing there again upon what he knows and who he knows. He knew that he would have to appear in Rome. He knew that Jesus is the creator of all things, and all things exist by him and through him, and he sustains all things. And so Jesus was not surprised when a viper came out and bit him, and Jesus was like, oh my gosh, I didn't see that coming. And so when that viper comes out and latches on, Paul can say, Jesus rules and reigns over that viper. Jesus rules and reigns over my body and all of the effects that will happen as a result. And he can do whatever he wants because he's the creator. He knew that he could not die unless he had accomplished what Christ had called him to do. There was nothing that he was going to experience that was going to be the end of him until he fulfilled the promises, at least, that God had called him to do. And beyond that, he knew that he was not his own, but he belonged to Christ. So he wasn't worried about himself, his personal identity. He was wanting to be faithful to Jesus. This is how we ought to respond to trials. We need identity in Christ. We are told, uh, I'll give you three passages. First, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. So we do not lose heart, because it's easy to lose heart in trials. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that there is this affliction, suffering that happens on the outside that is passing away, but is preparing us for the glory of knowing and enjoying Christ more deeply and seeing him face to face. He goes on in Romans 8, verse 18, saying this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, which Paul had a lot of sufferings, so he had a lot of considering to do, uh, he considered that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He knows that there is something at the end that is worth it. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. There is this future hope that Paul looks to. 
And he says, like creation that is waiting for that day where God sets all things right, we know that something is not right here. Because when we see him as he is, when we are with him, there will be no trials. He will set things right once and for all. Lastly, we finish with James chapter 1, verse 2, with the explicit instructions, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Paul, or James there, he says that this testing, it produces godly character in you. Now, here's, here's what happens when we tend to encounter trials. We get to a trial, and then we say, like, okay, I'm going to get through this. I'm going to get through this. I'm going to make it. We just tend to get real practical about it. All right, I'm heading into a difficult, difficult section. I got this. But that's not how James describes it. That's not how James describes what we ought to do. He says, count it all joy. That means that you're you're expecting, that you see a prospect on the horizon and you're like, oh, here comes something good. I'm about to get into some crazy stuff right now, but it is going to be good for my character. So when you see difficulty, you can be like, all right, let's do this. You can get excited at the prospect of God working in your life. It sounds crazy, but this is what, what happens when we treasure Jesus above all else. Because when we get to those trials, we see other things shifting and shaking. We see other things falling apart. But Jesus stands firm. He stands strong and faithful. Jesus doesn't shake. Jesus is there in the storm. And he is amazing. Amazing. And so we see trials and we say, Jesus is going to look real good in this one. He's going to come out on top. He's going to be crushing it. We can look forward to what Christ will do in us. We can look forward to seeing Christ more clearly. It doesn't mean you have to have like an amazing time. Like, yeah, I got bit by a snake. You'd be like, I got bit by a snake. That was a bummer. But look what Jesus is doing for me. You don't have to like, it's not some weird thing where you have to be bummed out, like be like excited about like the pain. (laughs) You're treasuring Jesus, not the pain. Don't get confused. Okay, let's wrap here. Verse six. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Right? This is exactly what happens with human nature. Right? And these people who are good people, first they're like, you're a murderer. This is why it happened to you. And then they're like, oh, actually, you're a god. That's why you survived. Like, I don't, that logic does not work. That lo- does not work. But this is why they think 
that it's on the basis of, oh, well, you're actually a god. That's why you survived. You must be like actually like a really good person. And so that's why it happened to you to show your power and your strength. We don't want to show our power, our strength. We want to show Jesus clearly. Earlier in the book of Acts, in chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas were mistaken for gods in Lystra. They were like, oh, Paul, you're Zeus, and, and Barnabas, you're Hermes, because you're the guy who speaks a lot. And they, like, wanted to offer them, and Paul's like, no, no, like, you guys, I need to introduce, 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 you created all things. And it says there that, like, they could hardly keep them from offering sacrifices. Paul, like, did his best to try to, like, tell them, like, no, no, I'm not, I'm, like, not a god. We don't have an explicit reference to Paul preaching that here to them, but is no doubt that he's preaching the gospel to them uh, as a counter to this. Uh, we immediately move from there to the story of this man, Publius, uh, verse 7. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hosp- hospitably for three days. So again, they come into contact with maybe this guy uh, who's called the chief, the chief man of the island. Either uh, it's, he's like this high roller guy. Uh, he could either be uh, one of the Roman governors or uh, somebody who they installed there, or he could have been like a local guy who they put there. But he was probably a rich guy. Uh, you know, um, he's given this Roman name, Publius, which kind of denotes that he was probably also given Roman citizenship to be a part of this. And so he comes and he's like, oh, I'm going to take care of like all these Roman soldiers and like their duty for the, for the empire. So he comes, he takes care of them. He entertains them hospitably for three days. Verse eight, it happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery and Paul visited him and prayed and putting his hands on him, healed him. So uh, his dad, was not feeling well. He has been sick. He's had this uh, fever for quite some time. Uh, and so Paul ministers to the Father uh, here through prayer, the laying on of hands. Uh, and again, Luke's concern here, his emphasis is to show Paul's kindness, his faithfulness. He's building a gospel bridge. He's building a way for somebody to hear the truth of the gospel. He gets in here, he prays for him, he visits him, uh, and he heals him. Now, Paul does this, he accomplishes this uh, through prayer, demonstrating by contrast that he is not a God, but relies on the true God, that he is not calling on his own authority, his own power, but is looking to uh, the creator of all things. He's living in a way that demonstrates his commitment, his commitment to Christ. He wants others to see that when there's difficulty, when there's hardship, even when the life of another, he doesn't say, well, let me, let me give you like my best like WebMD advice, right? Because everybody knows if you go on WebMD and you do the symptom checker, you either end up with like something that's like, oh, put some ointment on it or you have cancer. It's one or the other, like use that thing, you're in trouble. The issue that often happens with us is we want to give like, oh, here's some great practical advice. There's plenty of people in the world who have practical advice, but you have the Holy Spirit living in you, so you should pray and you should offer Christ and you should be faithful 
faithful to offer what other people do not have. And Paul says, I'm not going to come up here and just give you just like this random like encouragement. But he demonstrates his life in Christ. But at the same time, guess who he's got with him? Dr. Luke. Dr. Luke. So they have this medical missionary now that Paul rolls out in verse 9. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. So this is probably like a tag team where like Paul's like praying for some of them and offering, you know, uh, as the Lord heals people, he's probably doing that. And then there's probably like Dr. Luke who's like out there using the skills that the Lord has given him to be like, okay, like here, you just have like a little bit of this issue. Here's have some of this or here's something, a way that you should live or some prescription for how they ought to go. So it looks like there's probably some tag team that's happening here uh, with these guys. Seems nice that uh, the Lord in his foreknowledge sent Dr. Luke out there to join up with him. Uh, And then we find this, verse 10, the result. They honored us greatly, and when we were about to set sail, they put on board whatever we needed. So they honored them greatly. They've given them both uh, probably financial uh, you know, money. They probably gave them money, and they also gave them gifts for their journey. Here's what God does. He takes his people who think they're good people. They hear the gospel. Paul ends up, we don't hear it this week, but in verse 11, you see that Paul was with them for three months, which is plenty enough for Paul to get down and preach the gospel like a whole bunch. Uh, he, he only needed like a couple hours, but he had three months to just really make sure he did his job. Uh, he got it in for sure. Um, he builds relationships. He, he works on healing the town. He leaves the scent and fragrance of Jesus among this group of people. And then the Lord uses this group of people to then facilitate his further mission All these people, like, they start giving him money and resources and provide for him so that God could continue to do his work. He uses a bunch of people who don't even know him at all and say, oh, like, they're going to take all this money and help help God's plan. Which is exactly how God rolls. Because he's not worried about that sort of thing. They had whatever they needed. The Lord provided. Provided safety, for them on this future trip by providing resources, money, provided healing for the people who were on this island. Everybody who came through got something. Provided Paul to preach and proclaim the gospel. And the Lord provided a faithful witness and promises that he kept for the soldiers, for the prisoners, for the sailors, and for Paul. You see, Paul knew, but no doubt he needed to see God's faithfulness on display to build his faith. God's faithfulness is not only for the external world to see, but it's for his people to see, like, you were faithful. You did, you did accomplish what you said you would do. I think we need that a lot of times. And this is what we look forward to, we look for as Christians, as we build our faith. We're not so much building and strengthening our faith, but we're building a record of God's faithfulness, what he has accomplished, what he has done. And so we look to him, asking him to show himself again and again and again, so that when we are weak, we can confess that, and he might be strong. We can count on his strength. We can count on his faithfulness. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your kindness to us. We're thankful that you've given us 
new life in Christ. We're thankful that you were faithful to the end. And Lord, we want to respond in worship now. We pray that you would be glorified in your church as we pray, as we lift our hands, as we sing. Lord, we want you to have your way in our hearts now. Change us and transform us. We love you, Jesus. Amen.